This week on A Lively Experiment, a wide-ranging bill aimed at climate control passes the General Assembly. We'll tell you what those for and against are saying about it. And with COVID vaccinations soon to become universally available, will they become mandatory for school or travel? A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with the analysis, Leanne Senek, National Committee Woman for the Rhode Island Republican Party. Billy Hunt, Secretary for the Libertarian Party of Rhode Island. And Boston Globe reporter, Ed Fitzpatrick. Hello everyone, I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us this week. The Act on Climate, it will either help save Rhode Island from the increasing threats from climate control or it will impose an undue financial burden that will take Rhode Island and its residents right down the financial tubes. Or so it would seem from all of the discussion up at the State House this week before ultimately the General Assembly passed the legislation, Governor McKee is expected to sign it. Ed, let me begin with you as you wrote about this this week. It really seems like there is very little middle ground between the opponents and the proponents. Yeah, it's, it's been quite a debate. You know, this is the uh, top priority for environmental groups in the state, and it, it met a lot of opposition from chambers of commerce, from business groups. And uh, there was some drama there in whether Governor McKee would sign it. He raised the concern uh, about who would be able to sue to enforce the provisions of, of the uh, new law. He said only the attorney general uh, should be allowed to do that, but the uh, environmental groups and the, the way the bill was written would allow citizens, um, nonprofits, corporations to sue. And um, so the, the, uh, the, the thing that tilted the balance towards it was, toward him signing it, was the attorney general uh, sent a letter to the governor saying uh, that, uh, addressing the concerns about who could sue, saying uh, that, you know, you have environmental uh, laws like the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act that allow citizen lawsuits. He supported the, the legislation, urged its passage, and uh, now the, the governor is set to sign it. Um, you know, it passed both the House and the Senate overwhelmingly. Uh, so it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to be the law of the land. I don't know if this is an indication from a new speaker. The only time, and you've been up at the State House a lot over the course of your career, the only time I remember something passing this early in the session was the truck toll legislation that they got through in February many years ago. Usually they all wait and the chits go back and forth at the end. Was that also a message from the legislature? This is a priority. We're doing it now. We're not holding it for further study. Well, it really is a, a amazing how one year can make a difference because, you know, a year ago we had uh, an event down at the uh, Boston Globe headquarters at, on, uh, in the Wexford building, and uh, then Speaker Mattiello came and, and he said, uh, there's nothing Rhode Island can do to address climate change in a way that's real or impactful. So as you know, he lost in November and the, the new Speaker, Joe Shikarchi, has said, we can't wait, we have to take action. Leanne, go ahead and jump in. What are your thoughts on this legislation? Well, you know, I wonder why we need this legislation. Um, 
what what purpose is this going to serve? It's actually putting into law this this mandate, a government mandate that's going to be an expense and a burden on taxpayers, on homeowners, on business people. And in the end run, what are we going to gain by doing this? Can this be done without this law? And concerns about litigation, this law is going to create the ability for people to litigate. By, by putting this law in place, they're giving people the ability to then turn around and sue the state. And those concerns, to me, have not been allayed at all. I would also like to know if people can sue the state for the undue um, expenses that are going to be pushed onto homeowners, to property owners, to business owners, as they have to upgrade and update um, things to be in compliance with the state. It's a mandate that we really don't need. And the premise behind it is to, you know, affect climate change here in Rhode Island. It's going to have such a minuscule effect on a global climate change scale that why are we putting this burden on, on people and to attract jobs and to, it's really a grab for money for the federal money that's up for grabs. And that's still the same taxpayer money. We're still pulling out of the same pot, whether it's federal, local, or state. It's still this ta the taxpayer that's, that's on the hook for this. And we're talking about putting debt onto future generations that this climate bill is supposed to be elevating future generations and is burdening them with more debt. So I don't see the advantages of it. I don't see why we can't have goals to reduce these emissions without having it as the law. What, what does making that a law provide for businesses to attract them to come in to do business with Rhode Island? Billy? So yeah, this is a classic example of the government picking winners and losers. Uh, I don't know anybody else, but uh, working from home, I during a pandemic, I've seen uh, many more solar salespeople coming and knocking my, on my door than I even saw political candidates over the last election. So this is the carrot of the incentive where they're going out and they're dying for people uh, to subsidize putting solar on their home uh, and uh, in, enticing people to invest in renewable energy. Uh, I'm afraid to see what the stick is going to be in a few years uh, when they start implying taxes and uh, to the business owners and the homeowners and the property owners uh, that uh, are enticing them or, or forcing them to pay taxes when we're not meeting the goals set in place by this uh, committee of people who are unelected. So uh, the same legislators that are pushing affordable housing legislation don't seem to realize that when you increase the cost of housing, it's going to make it uh, by requiring these energy bills and these upgrades to their housing, it's going to make it unaffordable for the people who are most uh, need of lower rents and uh, lower housing costs. It's a regressive tax more than anything else, really. And I wonder from a practical standpoint, we've all been around Rhode Island government long enough, near uh, uh, net zero emissions by 2050, we can barely get through one budget cycle without worried about plugging the hole. Who's gonna be this executive climate change council? Who really is gonna be looking at this four years, eight years, 10 years and say, okay, we got 20 years left, we need to be doing this. Rhode Island has not been good in looking down the line. And so that's a crystal ball question, but I'm just thinking it's nice to have this and say over 30 years, but we've never really been good at the long run in Rhode Island. Yeah, that's true. It, it tends to go year to year with the budget and, and supplemental budgets and things like that. There are steps along the way. It's not just the end goal of uh, net zero by 2050. There's uh, plans at 2030, 2040, and the people on that commission are going to be the state agencies, DEM, the um, all, all the different uh, state agencies. One of the interesting things was uh, where support did come from and, and that could make an impact, I think, is that PPL just bought Narragansett Electric. And it, it stood out that in their statement, they said, we believe our experience 
in automating electricity networks can help Rhode Island achieve this goal of 100% renewable energy. So they're seeing it as adding some more solar and, and uh, wind power to, to the grid, to the, to the network, uh, and, and moving to more renewable energy sources in the economy. All right. There's what about a- investments in the grid itself, though? Is it able to sustain all this additional demand if we start changing everything over to electric heating and everything like that? Is that something that the grid can even manage? That's the big question that's out there right now, too. And look that- at what happened in Texas just recently. Are we? Is that what we're going to face here? And we have a, a very different climate than Texas does. We tend to lose electricity a lot more frequently during storms, um, and we have much colder winters to deal with, with people being with power outages and not being able to have heat in their homes. I get the sense, though, Ed, it's, although there are benchmarks, this is a statement right now, and then the details will work out as, I mean, a lot of people want all the details right now, have time to work and a- answer those questions that Billy and, and uh, Leanne are asking. Yeah, it, it doesn't require uh, like a homeowner or business to do anything specific yet, but it does create this commission that would create plans to do that. So, you know, we're, we're definitely going to want to pay attention to what the, what the, uh, what the plan will be. All right. COVID vaccines, they're getting a lot better. And before you know it, almost everyone is going to be available probably within the next 10 days of watching this. With that brings the question of the next phase. Will there ultimately be a a mandate to get on a plane or maybe go to a school? We've already heard that Brown and Roger Williams are going to require their students, with some exceptions, of course, in the fall. uh, Leanne, let me begin with you. A very interesting, uh, a Democratic state uh, uh, legislator talked about making it a protected class that you cannot be there's legislation pending now that there's a lot of concern about there's some people who are worried about getting the vaccine it's a personal choice but will they face consequences down the line so it's a fascinating argument to me that's been playing out up at the state house it, it is and i'm glad that they are looking at protections for those people that do not want to get the vaccine i do think it is a personal choice i think it's a choice that should be made with medical professionals i think everyone should individually look at their risks Um, that they have regarding COVID-19, what their chances are of contracting it and becoming seriously ill and weighing that with the the risks of the vaccine and making a decision based on that personally for each individual, whether they want to get the vaccine or not. The idea of a vaccine passport, I totally do not agree with. I don't think that that will be necessary. If we're talking about vaccination, moving us back towards a sense of normalcy, if we have 70 to 80 of our people vaccinated, why do we need a passport to prove that then? If people are out there and they're immunized and they're not able to pass it on to other people, we, we determine that we have herd immunity, that we have people vaccinated. What is the, the requirement then to be able to have a piece of paper um, to show that that is the case? And we talk about a lot of the unintended consequences of things that we're, the government puts in. What What is to say that people aren't going to then fake these vaccine passports. What's going to make it say that you don't, you're going to have to have a picture on it then to prove that it is you that has this piece of paper? There's so many other questions that are going to come along with that. And it's all just really an invasion of our privacy. This is actually a medical thing and it's protected under HIPAA. So whether you want to disclose that or not is totally up to you. Um, I think most people really don't have an issue with saying whether they're vaccinated or not. I got my first shot. I'm okay letting people know that I'm getting a vaccine. Um, but I think if the vaccine is the, the goal of vaccinating everyone was to prevent COVID, to move us out of this lockdown phase and to move us back to a sense of normalcy, then having a passport to prove that is not normal. 
Yeah, and I also think that as the numbers go down, look, the hospitalizations have gone down. We're not where we were even six months ago. I think that a lot of this is, look, if we're at a 1.5% infection rate, people, it's going gonna, it's gonna to ratchet down because people are really going to realize the vaccine is doing its job. Do we really need to make sure that people prove that? Billy, what are your thoughts on this? Well, there's a, certainly a lot of virtue signaling going on right now. It's basically a moot point. There's not enough uh, vaccine out there for the people that actually want it. Why are we concerned about the people that don't want it? Uh, to Leanne's point, there's you know three concerns, and she brought up the unintended consequences of the forgeries and people uh, creating a black market of people va uh, making uh, fake vaccine records and uh, medical records if we start moving into the vaccine passport. Uh, that doesn't do anyone any good because that just prevents the people from knowing who actually has has the vaccines and it's really the unintended consequences when government tries to get involved with something like this. Uh, the other two concerns I have are uh, for a vaccine passport are privacy. Uh, you know, we're in an age now, everybody's working from home, hacks and, and everything is getting on, on the rise. The government businesses are all getting hacked. Uh, are we going to have a central repository either, either on the federal side or on the state side where all this information is consolidated that is easily breached and uh, taken by a foreign entity? Uh, is that something, you know, with the track record we have with the state with uh, UHIP and all the other problems that we've had, even with unemployment and the fraud that's going on with people filing unemployment claims fraudulently? Is that something that we really want to secede to the government to have them taking control of important medical information? And the last uh, it piece is, you know, what does this mean for the future? Uh, what is this information going to be used for? After 9-11, the NSA really started taking uh, mass data collection on citizens. They started uh, related to the whole wireless uh, warrantless wiretaps and everything where they were collecting information on the citizenry. Is this something that's going to be used in the future for universal health care, where they're going to be tracking our medical records to try to cut costs uh, when they try to inevitably pass universal health care? There's a lot of major implications and questions, and it's something that uh, it goes against the Constitution and what we stand for as American people, I think. And you worked at Roger Williams for a while. I know you're not there anymore. You certainly don't speak for them. But it's interesting. They were the first out of the blocks. And look, they're a private school. They can do what they want. Brown said the same thing. If you want to, in order to come on campus, we're certainly not denying you an education. But it was interesting that they got out of the blocks first. And I wonder if you see maybe a difference between a public school and a private school and where this is going to go down the line in terms of education. You were in the middle of that for many years. Yeah, you know, the European Union has this idea of a vaccine passport, but that, that ha isn't being pushed forward here in America. We've got Dr. Fauci saying, I doubt the federal government will be the main mover on a vaccine passport concept. It's really going to be a decision, I think, that private entities like Roger Williams or, or Brown uh, take. Like Fauci said, uh, I'm not saying they should or that they would, but I'm saying you, you could foresee how an independent entity might say, you know, we can't be dealing with you unless we know you're vaccinated. And, you know, we're just talking about our our, our kids going to school. Right? My oldest son's going to go be going to college uh, next year. And and uh, some of the schools he's looking at are requiring vaccines. You know, I don't see it as a, a matter of ideology or partisanship. It, it's a matter of public health. And I'm relieved that he, he'll be able to go to his freshman year and, and not have to worry about that. Yeah, and practicality, too, because we know the disaster, the rollout. My, my alma mater, they were there 10 days. Everybody moved in last year, and then they all had to go home because of the outbreaks. So I would think as a parent, that gives you a little bit of comfort that it's going to be, if you get most of those kids vaccinated, look, we know kids are not always going to follow the public health guidelines, but the vaccine would help in that situation. 
Yeah, yeah. My my niece went to college. Was her unfortunately was her freshman year last year, and she ended up bouncing back and forth, and eventually spending the whole uh, spring semester at home uh, learning remotely. So yeah, I think it'll give a lot of people some peace of mind. A lot of people have been asking how long will this state of emergency last that Governor Armando instituted more than a year ago. Some people say it's for the federal money. Other critics say it's because the government wants to continue to control us. Governor McKee, I think a lot of people thought there was going to be this 180-degree turn. In reality, he's continued a lot of what uh, Governor Armando did. Billy, you and I kind of talked about this off-camera, about the state of emergency, but the larger issue about how government is doing its business now. And Sometimes the residents are getting left behind on these Zoom calls where you have 200 people. How are you going to have your voice heard? Well, I wrote a op-ed in the local paper back in May calling for us to get our voice back as the legislative body. There's a uh, checks and balances that are supposed to be there for our elected officials at the state house to be providing, uh, providing a check for the legislative branch and what they're doing. And really, I think you know the straw that broke the camel's back was when Gina got a, uh, announced she was getting appointed to Commerce Secretary and then basically abandoned ship and uh, didn't really do anything in regards to the uh, the weekly meetings and the briefings, handed everything off to. Uh, uh, Nicole Alexander Scott and, uh, you know, Stefan Pryor. Uh, At that point, the General Assembly really should have stepped in and, uh, you know, wrangled power back from the legislative branch. And I think it serves a function for them, though, political cover that this uh, ongoing state of emergency is on. And it provides them cover that they can go ahead and pass this progressive legislation without a lot of input or feedback from the uh, the people. They You're getting limited uh, phone uh, testimony a minute uh, long, uh, or you have to submit written testimony. Who knows if it's actually getting written, uh, getting read in the, uh, the testimony. And, uh, and realistically, it's, you know, this is the type of thing where we go, we talked about the climate bill earlier on, where uh, the government is seceding this power to the legislative branch, just like they're going to secede the power of this climate bill to the legislative branch. And we need the General Assembly to come back in service and, you know, open up and and take power back. We've been in this for over a year. Um, You know, what would have happened last summer if we had a hurricane or this winter if we had a uh, a blizzard or something like that? I think of Dean Wormer in Animal House would be on double secret emergency, uh, you know, order by the the governor. It's something that, uh, you know, it's been going on long enough and there's a lot of apathy uh, amongst the people of Rhode Island, I think. Leanne, we've talked about it over the years. The the legislature was largely MIA, except the Republicans. The GOP caucus in the House was very um, active. But I wonder your thoughts about how government functions and ultimately when this state of emergency might disappear. Well, you know, government functioning is kind of an oxymoron at this point. Um, (laughs) Our government is not functioning. It's a representative government. And those representatives that we've elected to represent us have ceded their responsibility. And we're looking at a state of emergency that was put in place because of certain metrics, because there was a, a higher percentage of people being infected. As that has gone down, the hospitalization rate has now gone down. The amount of people dying from the COVID virus has decreased. So those metrics need to be looked at, and we need to look at it in the same way as we close things down, we now need to start opening them up. And the government is one of the first things that should be opening. If there were ever um, essential things that needed to be done in our state, the government is one of those bodies that should be operating. Essentially, if you have grocery workers who can go and cash people out and put themselves at risk of contracting a virus, why can't our representatives meet in person? Why can't they have people coming in to testify in person? 
You can still stay six feet away. They can keep a mask on, but you can still have the same procedures in place that should be there so that people's voices are being heard. And there's, there's absolutely no reason at this point to not do business as usual, as bad as that is in this state. Hey, they did spend $166,000 on the plexiglass and they haven't been able to, uh, to use that. Ed, give me the reporter's perspective about covering government. You're up at the state house a lot, although not physically anymore. Kind of, does that help you? Does it hinder you having to cover things on Zoom? Is it better to be in the, I, I don't get the sense because I'm not in the trenches like you are. What, what's the reporter's perspective? Yeah, I mean, they are getting together over at Rick. The Senate meets at Rick and, and the, the House gets together. So they are meeting in person. But it does it does present some difficulties in covering it. You know, that that just grabbing someone in the hallway and having face-to-face conversations has a lot of value. There, There is some, you know, it's efficient in a way to, to cover it on, on Zoom and just crank it out right there. Um, but uh, one interesting part of it was that uh, one interesting aspect of where we uh, go from here is uh, – the, the House Minority Leader, Blake Flippy has a bill in that would require live streaming for any open meeting of municipal and state uh, public bodies uh, going forward. And his, his idea was, you know, we, we've seen the value of this, that people can, uh, a lot more people tuning in at home if they're fixing dinner for the kids or whatever. It's, it's it, you know, he says it's cheap and everyone's doing it, everyone loves it. And he thinks any public body that goes back to the way it was before is going to have uh, some backlash. Now, uh, you know, the, I think uh, Common Cause, John Marion's raised some concerns about doing that, that it, it, he sees the value, but he says, if you're going to do it, you need to put some guardrails on. Like, how do you get the documents that everybody is uh, getting handed out at a public meeting um, and, and issues like that? So I, I could see that, you know, some of the things that we've uh, adopted here in the pandemic, we, we need to keep, but we need to figure out how to uh, get back to some of the value of that face-to-face interaction. Yeah, it sounds good in theory, but a lot of execution, like the documents, the interaction, um, all of that. But I agree, the technology allows us to do it. Folks, I can't tell you, I can't wait to get back in the studio lively, but we're glad to be able to do it on Zoom for now. So stay tuned on uh, getting back in the studio. i got a couple other things to get to, but let's, uh, let's do outrages and or kudos. Billy, what do you have this week? So uh, my outrage is uh, about the uh, an oldie but a goodie uh, in regards to the Barrington bridges that connect uh, uh, Barrington and Warren. Uh, we just got in the paper, uh, D- Director Alvidi announced that the bike path bridges, uh, which were supposed to go out to bid this spring, uh, the twenty uh, this year, uh, to be replaced, uh, have not going to be replaced. They're going to be pushed back. I mean, this bridge, w- the bridges were completed in 2009, three years late, $10 million over budget. Uh, they uh, they closed the bridges to fishing, which is a big issue in Warren, having access to uh, fishing, and you can't really do it off the, the bridges itself. Uh, the, the thing that's the most shocking about everything is that there's a $25 million price tag associated with replacing two old railroads road bridges to make them into bike path bridges that seems outrageous and uh you know it's something that the east bay really needs it's an important uh feature of the east bay and we really need to get those uh bike path bridges back up and running as a personal aside i send the uh i send the uh a director an email every week and uh he's been a little defensive on it but i understand he's got an entire uh thing to run but look he doesn't live in the east bay and understand that how popular it is and you having to ride on county road what he said they should have done billy was to build it with the original bridges that took 14 years to build well that's yep. nice water under the bridge pun fully intended but um well, i will hardly and the bridges echo. are also 
And those bridges are also structurally deficient uh, as of a few years ago, too, which makes yeah, that's, a whole other, that's a whole other <laughs> issue. All right. Ed, what do you have this week? Outrage or kudo? Well, I, you know, we take our press freedom for granted here. So if you, for instance, write a story about a, a warrant public official, they might send you a, an angry message that if they didn't like it. But it, it, overseas, you know, it, it, you see that the consequences can be a lot more dire. So in, in Myanmar, the generals seized power there and said that if you use, the, they said journalists cannot use the word coup or regime or junta or anything like that in covering uh, what's going on there. And then 56 journalists have been arrested. Three have been shot. Um, it's just a reminder that we've got to value the press freedoms we have here in the United States. Yeah, here, here. Leanne, what do you have this week? I have an outrage. Um, the the crisis at the border, and you know, make no mistake, this is a crisis. The Biden administration can equivocate um, about what's in a name all they want, but in the meantime, we have you know uh, tragedies of Shakespearean proportions unfolding at the border in our country, and. We're talking today about, you know, mandates and government mandating every individual little thing that we do, what car we drive, how we heat our home, uh, whether we have a vaccine, whether we don't, whether we can prove it, whether not. And we have chaos at the border, people coming through the border, unaccompanied minors, children literally being thrown over the wall and hoping that someone is going to catch them. Today, they talked about um, just released information about a federal facility in Texas that there are allegations of sexual abuse. There's over 1,300 unsupervised teens in this in this uh, facility. And they're sending the Texas Rangers in there um, because the agencies that are overseeing this are overwhelmed. And while they're overwhelmed, while this is happening, while we're trying to take care of all of these unaccompanied minors that are coming in because of this bad policy but set by the Biden administration. There are other people coming across our border, terrorists, MS-13, uh, gang members, drug cartels. They're making millions of dollars. People are being abused. And this is all because of a bad policy that did not, this does not have to be happening right now. We had this under control. And because of the policy trying to bring people in, um, Biden coming out saying, come now or not come now or don't. And they have done nothing. They have had weeks to work on this once this, this crisis started and we've seen nothing out of this administration. We have, they haven't even visited the border to see the actual humanitarian and the national security crisis that's developing there. Yeah, we only have a couple minutes left. Let's continue that. Billy and Ed, your thoughts on that? And what does the administration have to do? It's not like they weren't signals. The Biden administration says some of this was the annual, the annual spring surge that goes on, but it's a lot of what the Trump administration faced, the criticism in terms of how they're handling it down there. Billy, what, how does the, what does the administration do to tackle this? Oh, I mean, from the libertarian perspective, this is a an issue of uh, are we talking about an immigration issue? Or are we talking about a social program issue? Uh, because I think the two are related. And the libertarian perspective is we need to stop with the social programs that are enticing these people to come uh, to America in the first place. Uh, the humanitarian aspect of it and the opportunity aspect of it, uh, the libertarian perspective is that we should be allowing people to come here to pursue their American dream and to be functioning and members of society and, uh, and adding to that. And it just uh, it just it makes me wonder every time the administration changes and it goes from being kids in cages and the Trump administration to now being holding facilities and it's not a big deal with the Biden administration. It makes you wonder if they're really looking to solve the issue itself or if they're just looking to exploit the issue. Ed, you get the last minute on this. Uh, well, one story I did earlier this week was about how Haitian American uh, leaders in Rhode Island are calling for the Biden administration to stop deporting. Uh, undocumented people from Haiti. Uh, some are coming across the border in, in Mexico because 
they're, they're being right now, if you if send someone back to Haiti, it's a it's a very volatile political situation where there's kidnap a lot of kidnappings, political violence, there's gangs uh, kind of loosely tied uh, to the government there. So you have like the Providence City Councilwoman Nerva LaFortune and uh, Bernard Georges from uh, New Bridges for Haitian Success saying uh, we should the Biden administration should stop using the uh, Title 42 uh, policy that the Trump administration enacted to say that we're going to uh, deport you before you can uh, claim asylum um, uh, without uh, any recourse. All right, folks, I'm sorry to cut you off there. It's always a quick 30 minutes. Ed Fitzpatrick, great to see you. Leanne Senek and Billy Hunt, come back. And folks, come back here. If you don't see us on Friday at 7, Sunday at noon, you can catch us on Twitter. We post all of our uh, broadcasts on ripbs.org and however you get your favorite podcast. We are growing in podcast popularity. Folks, come back here. You never know what's going to happen between now and next week, but we will have it covered as a lively experiment continues. Have a great week. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.